I see you have chosen to listen. I hoped you would. My name is Kai. Some call me a guide, some a shepherd. I prefer Weaver. If you listen carefully, you will find the thread. Just One Ship by Alexander Bruce speaks to the tenacity of humanity, even in the face of galactic war. It is a tenacity I have seen firsthand. I will begin my story in 18 seconds. Now, close your eyes, take a breath, imagine. A future so close you can almost feel it. A world so real you can almost touch it. This is dust. The first time I laid eyes on the UTS Artemis, I was working as a sensor technician aboard a deep space station called Respite from Shadow, one of the busiest shipping and transportation hubs in the quadrant. Our sprawling station floated at the intersection of a dozen major FTO lanes in Imperial Sector 37. When the war broke out, RFS became a field hospital, strategic waypoint, a refugee center, and a refitting facility for our Imperium fleet and our allies. That was why Artemis had come to us, requesting permission to dock for repairs. Artemis was a Kodiak-class destroyer, part of a small expeditionary force the humans had contributed to the Imperium's war effort. Our allies had all sent forces, but the United Terrans fleet show of support was noteworthy because our commanders had actually deemed it unsuitable for combat. We were only a few months into the war, and already our fleet had been greatly depleted. The earliest battles were vicious and costly. Our commanders, groomed and promoted in an era of peacetime, were more accustomed to chasing smugglers than fighting conventional battles. They were too heavy-handed in their deployment of resources and troops, foolishly sending retaliatory fleets consisting of our most densely armed vessels into battle. As a result, almost half of our heavy cruisers were lost within a mere two weeks of combat, and three of our seven command carriers were destroyed by the end of the first month. Even our most seasoned fleet commanders couldn't have predicted a full-on assault from multiple enemies across our entire border. And that's what happened. It didn't take Imperium leadership long to realize that a new strategy was called for. Our remaining heavy cruisers were redeployed to defend the civilian colonies from attack. They were our shield. Their orders had been to fend off the enemy at any cost, and their crews can proudly take their place in history for the sacrifices they made in that effort. What followed was nothing less than an all-out fight for survival. Make no mistake, without the support of our allies, we would have been doomed. When you consider all of that, the fact that we turned down assistance from a willing ally tells you a great deal about how the humans were regarded at the time. Their people were relative newcomers on the galactic scene. They'd only developed faster than light travel a generation earlier, so it had been deemed unreasonable to expect them to participate in warfare on an interstellar scale. We were a beast. They were in a fixed barnacle insisting we were partners. Laughable, right? Even after our Empress herself formally released them from any obligation of alliance, they came all the same. As their ambassador said, humanity isn't a fair-weather ally. You've got our back, and we've got yours. 
It was an admirable sentiment. But as I watched the human ship clumsily approach on one functioning engine, I can honestly say I wasn't impressed. To me, she was the very definition of a first-gen FTL vessel, created by a race too blinded by ambition to consider the ramifications of interstellar combat. She was a relic of antiquated design, strategy, and technology. We were short on available space in RFS at the time. A farming colony about three parsecs coreward had come under heavy bombardment earlier that week and we were packed to the bulkheads with refugees. Nevertheless, we managed to find a place for Earth's vessel to dock on one of the lower tiers of our station, and we even deployed a maintenance crew to assist with repairs. The first round of technical checks supported my initial impression of the ship. The Imperium inspector's first scans revealed the power systems aboard Artemis were embarrassingly inept. Any Imperium fleet vessel running below 95% reactor efficiency was considered unacceptable. Anything less than 90% was cause for internal investigation. Artemis's reactors were only running at about 70% efficiency. Moreover, the ship was painfully unsightly. The pitted armor and plasma scorches that marred her hull accentuated the ship's harsh, angular shape. Her side and aft armor were absurdly lightweight, and her pitiful interior compartments had fewer crew amenities than some of our ground-based simulators. The most substantially reinforced sections of her body were at the bow and along the beam, as though her builders had been afraid someone might drop something on her head. We grudgingly admitted that she had some noteworthy capabilities. She'd obviously been built for speed, and even I could admit that her eyesore of a hull gave her an incredibly narrow scanner cross-section. But for the most part, we rated her slightly below a garbage hauler. We kept that opinion to ourselves in public, especially when the human sailors were in earshot, but in private we all agreed that calling Artemis a warship was an insult to real warships everywhere. It was three days after her arrival when the attack came. When the call to action stations came over the RFS loudspeakers, more than a few personnel thought it was a joke, laughing as they leisurely reported to their posts. It wasn't until multiple impacts shook the station that they realized it was no drill. An enormous and unrecognized contact had dropped out of FTL and immediately began firing on us. Some intermittent and dubious transmissions identified the contact as a Ryle Dreadnought, but our receivers were being bombarded with distress cries from dozens of civilian ships desperately trying to flee. Most were torn to pieces before they could escape the onslaught. I remember the way the lights flickered as incoming fire chewed away at the station's armor. I could still feel the vibration of our weapon systems through the deck plating. The point defense turrets were doing what they could to intercept inbound missiles while our few anti-ship batteries tried to inflict whatever damage they could on our attacker. But the sheer amount of debris that surrounded the station had reduced the targeting arrays into a dust cloud of blind spots. When Fleet Command had refit the station for military operations, priority had been placed on logistics and fleet support systems, not weaponry. We simply were not equipped for this kind of fight. The station's defense was the responsibility of the half-dozen gunships that patrolled the perimeter. Those ships responded almost instantly, but had stopped transmitting only a few seconds later. We were helpless without their protection. And now I was watching their shattered halls burn in space. A feeling of crushing hopelessness hung in the air of the respite from Shadow's operations center as our crew watched the massive dreadnought bear down on us like a hungry predator. 
Some wept in despair. Others stared dumbly out the main viewports, though I'm proud to say I was one of the few to remain at his post even I couldn't see a way to survive the attack. All I could do was direct any departing vessels onto clear outbound flight paths and hope they were fast enough to avoid the dreadnought's fire. The humans, as it turned out, weren't about to give in to despair. The station's central hub had shielded Artemis from incoming fire. The battle was less than a minute old when the humans fired up their vessel's drive reactors and rumbled like a caged animal in her berth. They ignited her main engines a heartbeat later, transmitting a single message as she leapt from the docking arm. Save everyone you can, they told us. We'll hold them off. At first, I couldn't imagine what the humans hoped to accomplish. The enemy vessel was enormous, roughly eight times the size of Artemis, and boasted artillery to the gills. It was stronger than she could ever hope to defeat. Or so I thought. The mystery of the Artemis's wasted reactor output was answered as she suddenly unleashed a breathtaking display of military firepower. Multiple point defense batteries came to life, filling the space around her with microkinetic projectiles that easily shredded the incoming Ryle torpedoes. Rows of launch tubes opened up along her sides, releasing swarms of agile rockets that seemed to slip right past the Ryle shields. Most devastating were the pair of magnetic accelerator cannons that had risen from her fore and aft. Each cannon tore into the dreadnought skeleton with an unyielding barrage of high-velocity shells, smoothly tracking their targets as Artemis dodged the incoming fire. Her greatest flaw had become her key asset. Whereas once she had been puny, she was now nimble. Same ship, same size, but I was seeing her anew. Try as it might, the Ryle simply couldn't maintain a steady firing solution on the evasive Artemis. Watching the battle in astonishment, I suddenly understood just how wrong I'd been about her how wrong we had all been. And now my shame wrestled with my awe as I witnessed the tiny warship fight with the fury of an Imperium battlecruiser. The Dreadnought was focused solely on the pesky Artemis as the two vessels traded blows, and we took full advantage of this distraction. One by one, every ship still connected to our station was loaded to capacity with people and supplies and launched the instant it received clearance. The relief from incoming fire made the evacuation process one of pure logistics. Soon, all the large transports had safely escaped and we were down to the last available options. Trade vessels, courier ships, and private yachts. Even cargo haulers, if their holds were pressurized, would suffice at this point. With every vessel we filled and launched, the reality that we wouldn't be able to save everyone became clearer. Even after the last ship had departed, packed bulkhead to bulkhead with refugees, there were still thousands of beings in need of transport. With nowhere left to flee, I accepted those might be my final moments. If I were to die, I could think of no greater memory to carry into the hereafter than the sight of Artemis fighting for our survival. Despite her ferocity, she couldn't hold out forever. Too soon, her firepower began to dwindle as her ammunition reserves ran dry. Rather than strike Artemis down, the Ryle seemed to decide she was no longer a threat. Arrogantly, almost disdainfully, the Dreadnought turned away from the smaller ship. Moving closer to our helpless station, it brought its main cannons to bear. Each of the guns was almost a quarter of the Ryle ship's length, too slow to use against smaller vessels, but more than capable of obliterating us in a single strike. 
With those massive cannons zeroed in on us, I felt as though the deck was falling away beneath my feet. My vision was fixated on the approaching dreadnought so much that I almost didn't notice when Artemis silently turned to face our attacker, brought her engines to full power, and violently accelerated. What I learned that day, what our enemies would painfully learn again and again, was that humans are never deadlier than when you threaten those they've sworn to protect. The Ryle, seeming to take notice of the human vessel once again, unleashed everything it had at her. Though anti-ship torpedoes clawed at her already weakened dorsal armor, breaching the hull and exposing entire decks to the vacuum of space, she was unstoppable. Her heart was protected by the heavily reinforced bow plating we'd all dismissed so readily. Her courageous engines blazed as she closed the distance, building more and more speed behind her 12,000-ton stature. By the time the Ryle understood her intent, she was too close for it to react. Artemis was at flank speed when her unbreakable bow pierced the dreadnought's hull and snapped it back, in one of the bravest maneuvers I will ever witness. After the wreckage had settled, I remember scanning Artemis, hoping that some of her crew may have survived. Though I couldn't detect any vital signs amidst the field of debris, I did pick up a major gravity spike. Someone, or something, was redirecting her onboard power, devoting what little output the reactor still had to ramping up an unexpectedly powerful FTL drive. I wasn't the only one to notice the increased energy output. Watching from the station, I could feel the Ryle's fear as dozens of smaller ships began pouring out of its launch bays. When Artemis's core reached critical mass a few seconds later, there was a pause. Just for a moment, as if she wanted those Ryle cowards to believe they might actually get away. Then she ended it. Firing her FTL drive without field containment, she ripped a hole in the skin of the universe and personally dragged her enemies into hell. They'd been eight times the size of the human vessel, and from the moment she'd bared her teeth, they never stood a chance. That day, the entire galaxy paused and took note. Don't ever underestimate human beings. number. Enough to change history. One person. One deed. One choice. I hope you've listened carefully. The choice may yet await. To know more, use the subscription mechanism. Performed by Aaron Cavett. Just One Ship is directed and produced by Raoul Vega of Phantom Ape Productions. Dust is produced by Stephen Michael A Gunpowder and Sky. Dust is executive produced by Floris Bauer, Van Toffler, and Eric Bromberg at Gunpowder and Sky. Associate produced by Sarah Newton and Avi Bugler. The producers wish to thank Jake McCarty, Helen Sadler, and Mark Holden. <laughs>